Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Audio, it's on Dinosaurs, the final day with David Attenborough. Audio only. ancestors might have looked something like this little furry creature. The rulers of the land were giant reptiles. Strike. A site 
that could reveal not only how the last dinosaurs lived, but how they died. If the dig team is right, Tannis could be a place where the remains of a long-lost world are frozen in time. A place that gives us, for the first time, an unprecedented window into the lives of the very last dinosaurs. And a minute-by-minute picture of what happened on the day the asteroid hit. This landscape is full of fossils dating from the late Cretaceous, the period which began around 100 million years ago and ended 66 million years ago when the dinosaurs vanished. Paleontologist Robert De Palma wants to find out more. I think anybody who has ever liked dinosaurs in the past, or still does, has thought at one point or another, well, what happened to them? Why are they not here anymore? So many different theories are out there, and nobody has a tight answer to that question. Judging from fossil evidence, this is what Hell Creek looked like in the late Cretaceous. There were low-lying marshy floodplains intercut by river channels and covered with horsetails, ferns and trees. Back then, it was warm and wet here all year round. Tannis lies in the northeastern corner of the Hell Creek Formation. Instead of today's dusty prairies, there were sandy riverbanks. Instead of rocky cliffs, there were forests. And instead of the life we know today, well, Robert is hoping to find out more about what that was like. A sandbank lying between a river and a forest would one day become what Robert now calls Tannis. He and his team have been digging here since 2012. So somewhere from between there and down here is where I came from. What? Oh, yeah, 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 okay. And what they found is unexpected. Here we've got this freshwater environment of the Hell Creek Formation, and this shocking red-green color is coming from the shells of ammonites, a marine organism, kind of like a coiled snail in appearance. So we've got this marine organism that's been thrown up into this freshwater environment, and they do not belong here. How they got here is a mystery. And there's more. I'm just going to go ahead and plane down some of this rock. Sitting just above the ammonites is something that many dinosaur hunters are desperate to find. So this orange layer right here is composed 100% of impact-related debris, 
that is enriched in iridium. Iridium is an element that's rare in the Earth's crust, but it's common in asteroids. The layer it's in is called the KPG boundary. It's made up of dust and debris from a huge asteroid impact. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what we want. Okay, so it's coming from this area here, so somewhere Lexa. in that region is where these pieces are coming from. The boundary is the age of the dinosaurs Lexa from the home. age of mammals. So the rocks here come from about the time that the dinosaurs became extinct. No rattlesnakes. What makes the site even more exciting is the rock layer right beneath the boundary where Robert found the ammonites. The rock here is really not quite rocky, as you would expect dinosaur bones and things to be encased. You expect really, really hard rocks and jackhammers and things like this, but it's very, very crumbly, and it just falls apart in your hands. As well as being crumbly throughout, this layer of rock is also around a meter thick, which, along with other unusual features, makes Robert think that something very strange must have happened here. Maybe a flood or a mud flow, burying anything within it in an instant. Oh, there's a beautiful, look at that one, beautiful. This could mean that anything he finds in this lair would have been quickly entombed, like the bodies in the volcanic ash of Pompeii. Robert knows from the geology that anything he finds at Tanis will be tantalizingly close to the end of the age of the dinosaurs and could be so well preserved that it could reveal new evidence that would bring this time period to life in a way no one has ever done before. Robert digs at Tanis each summer, the only time the weather allows him to do so. Come on down, check out this lens over here. In order to understand how the impact affected life on Earth, you really need to get a very clear picture of what the world was like right before. That is a critical part of the story. Paleontologists Dr. David Burnham and Lauren Gurchie have been digging with Robert for years. Oh, wow. See, see the brown? That might be a tubercle right there. And it seems today is their lucky day. Oh my God, look, look at, that. at that. Look, the oh, scales are preserved. They're like doing a freaking dissection. Oh my God. Biology of tennis. Oh, the scale, look, look, the wrinkles continue down that way. It's all nice and wet so far. The scales are getting smaller in that direction. How big are they there? I got a, I got a one with the, the projection over here. What? Oh. Yeah. oh. Yeah, there's oh, a protuberance right there. I've only seen uh, that on one other specimen. Oh, life. Yeah. This is the closest thing to getting in touch of living, breathing dinosaur. It is. They found something extraordinary. It is so exceedingly rare, a piece of Triceratops skin in the Hell Creek Formation. It may look like an impression in the rock, but this is skin that has been fossilized and over millions of years has turned to stone. Triceratops bones 
are relatively common finds in Hell Creek. But skin in such condition as this is very rare indeed. The size and the patterning of the scales, together with the age and location of the rocks where it was found, strongly suggests that this is from a Triceratops. The brown colour contains traces of organic material, so it might even be possible from this to work out which pigments were in it. Finding and studying such well-preserved fossils as this helps paleontologists build a much more detailed picture of how these creatures lived. Combining this information with insights from scientists around the world makes it possible to speculate about what life in the late Cretaceous might have been like. We know from bones that adult Triceratops could reach 9 metres in length and 3 metres in height. Marks on the fossil also show us that this one was badly scarred. Triceratops were plant eaters. Other fossils tell us that they had sharp beaks and hundreds of teeth that enabled them to shred tough plants such as these cycads. Almost all adult Triceratop fossils, including Roberts, have been found on their own. So it's possible that the adults were solitary like modern-day male rhinos. So they were probably territorial, chasing rivals away. And perhaps marking their territories. If you weigh more than an African elephant, there's not much that can bother you. except perhaps a little mammal. Robert found these jaw bones in a fossilized burrow of a talus. The shape of this tiny bone and tooth means it's most likely come from what's known as a pedomyid, an early mammal, and a type of marsupial. Robert also discovered fossilised nuts and seeds in the burrow. So we have an idea about what it might have eaten. Robert's finds are adding to our knowledge of the complex world at the very end of the late Cretaceous. And it's not just the fossilised creatures. If you walk on damp sand, you'll leave a trace behind. A footprint. 
Same was true 66 million years ago. And very, very occasionally, such traces were preserved. And that's exactly what happened here at Tennis. You know, we won't foil the backside. Right, we'll just put plaster, plaster right on, right on that one. You've got. Robert has discovered a number of footprints. Yeah, let's see. Looks like a good print. Yeah. Their shape gives him a clue as to what might have made them. If he's right, they were made by a winged creature that might well have liked a small mammal for lunch. Footprints are long and narrow with four toe prints. Two are slightly longer than the others. And that suggests they were made by a pterosaur. Pterosaurs? are not dinosaurs, but flying reptiles on a different branch of the evolutionary tree. Male pterosaurs usually had crests, while females didn't. So crests may have been used in courtship displays. females laid their eggs, because evidence suggests one pterosaur laid hers in the soft sandy banks of the river Antanas. And this is a fossilized egg of a pterosaur that Robert found there, the only one ever discovered in North America. If you look at it with the naked eye, all you see is a jumble of lines. But if you examine it with the latest technology, you can find out a wealth of information, from the chemistry of the bones to the composition of the shell. And that, in turn, can tell us a lot about how these incredible creatures lived. Robert has been given access to the Diamond Light Source Synchrotron in Oxfordshire. It's a very powerful research tool that acts like a giant microscope. By accelerating electrons in this huge ring, the synchrotron creates beams of light many times brighter than the sun. Robert and paleobiologist Dr. Victoria Edgerton now want to turn that beam onto the egg fossil to discover more about its chemical makeup. We're pretty much lined up on the skeleton, but we might have to move the stage a little bit to get to the right part. Sure. Meanwhile, 
Robert can reveal the creature inside. And this? Who made this wonderful thing? I got replicas of the bones from inside that egg, and I restored the remainder and put together what the skeleton would have looked like when it hatched. That's how big the creature would have been outside the egg, if it had hatched. So, this is the baby. How big was it going to grow? These very long neck vertebrae here are what really gave part of the story away to us, because those long bones match very, very closely with the Asdarkid pterosaurs. That is the giant pterosaurs. Oh, they were the whoppers, weren't they? I mean, what, 25 feet? Some of them. This probably had a wingspan maybe 15 feet, 5 meters. Well, it looks as though it could take off, really. It's easy to picture something like that, just hatching out of the egg and fluttering out almost like a little bat. They've scanned the egg here and in America. Victoria has the results. So what have you learned from this exosom image? What we have here is a chemical map of calcium directly within the bones of this animal. That tells us that these bones were already hardened, so it might be ready to fly not long after it hatches. Okay. Can you see any sign of the shell? And what sort of shell was it? We can. What I can show you ah. is we can see the rim of the egg in sulfur. Does that tell you whether it was a, a hard shell or a soft shell? We have been looking at this. We can see folding occurring in this unusual undulation. If it were a hard egg, we would expect splintered bits and broken bits, just like a chicken egg. This helps to tell us that it was soft. So it was perhaps like a turtle. Absolutely. That's not the case, is it, with dinosaurs? Many dinosaurs laid hard-shelled eggs. Yes. So this is a new discovery about Astarchid pterosaurs. Absolutely. This is something that we are confirming for the first time. Huh. That's flying pterosaurs had eggs like turtles. Yes, much more reptilian-like than bird-like. And that can potentially tell us more about the environment in which these eggs were laid. How interesting. Yeah. Creatures that lay soft eggs tend to bury them in order to protect them. So, female pterosaurs probably look for places like Tannis to lay their eggs. Because the sandy soil here is just soft enough for the hatchling to dig itself out. Now the pterosaur just has to make sure that the hole is perfect. Success. But it's not over yet. Pterosaurs had two ovaries, and they laid their eggs in pairs. Here 
here on the sandbank, sandwiched between the river and these glorious trees, life at Tanis seemed to be thriving. Oops. Never a dull moment. But all that was about to change. The chain of events that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs began in the distant past, deep in space. Most scientists think it all started in a ring of dust, rocks and debris known as the asteroid belt. It's usually an uneventful place. But it's thought that many, many millions of years ago, a rock was bumped into a new orbit. And diverted onto a collision course with planet Earth. Robert is building a vivid picture of late Cretaceous life at Tanis. And the team have found some more well-preserved footprints. So these are animals that were actually walking in the water? These guys would have been essentially on a mushy riverbank going down to drink at some point. You know, animals tend to congregate around the rivers. This print is 30 centimeters long. So I think this is from a type of dinosaur that we call a duck-billed dinosaur. And they would have been uh, very common in the Cretaceous. They ate uh, the plants in the area and they got very large, 30 feet long. And there are more. This track, you see all the toes are very well preserved. You even see a nail print at the tips of the toes. So the little toenails dug into the mud. I love this one. This is Robert's prize footprint. It has three toes and it's longer than it is wide. So it's very likely to be a carnivorous dinosaur. It's so well preserved that you can see the mark left by its sharp paw there. Hell Creek is well known for one carnivore in particular, T-Rex. This footprint is too small for an adult T-Rex, but it's possible that it was made by a young one. Robert also found this at Tanis, the crown of a tooth. Its shape and its serrated edge are indications that it comes from an adult T-Rex. T-Rex bones show that they ate other T-Rexes and the youngster would make an easy catch. 
but not this time. Very few footprints are preserved as fossils in Hell Creek. So if you find several in one place, as Robert has done, it's a reasonable assumption that there would have been many more nearby. And that supports the idea that dinosaurs and pterosaurs were thriving at Tanis shortly before the impact. And if they were thriving, they must have been reproducing. Fossils from dinosaurs similar to T-Rex show they may have laid around 20 eggs in a circular nest. It's possible that, like crocodiles, they partly covered their eggs to keep them warm. One T-Rex, a misfortune. But for all dinosaurs, a disaster was looming. space, the asteroid was approaching. Its journey would take it through the orbit of our neighboring planet, Mars. Had the two collided, a catastrophe on Earth would have been avoided. not to be, and Earth's fate was sealed. As Robert's dig continues, his vision of what happened at Tanis is finally starting to come together. It seems the sandbank was full of life. T-Rex, Triceratops, little mammals, alongside the footprints of other dinosaurs and pterosaurs, all in a very small area. See the scales? I do. Oh my God. That excites me just looking at it. <laughs> then Robert finds something truly remarkable. See the cracks already forming? Mm. Look at that. So we're going to have to really monitor that before we glue it. Because this is getting vulnerable now. An almost complete creature. To get this block out, we're freezing it. Robert 
is about to attempt something tricky. Danny? Go. To get the fossil out in one piece, they're trying to freeze it using liquid nitrogen at almost 200 degrees below zero. digging up human remains. We've got enough time to work with the fossil and not damage it. And I couldn't be happier. And the creature Robert found? A turtle. This is the fossil. Now it's been cleaned up. It's lying on its side. Here's the outline of its shell. The shape of the shell and the scalloped edges here tell us that this was a binid turtle. Robert's binid turtle looks very similar to modern Kuta turtles and lived in the same sort of freshwater environment. Tannis would have been ideal. Warm, shallow water. Plenty to eat. And lots of safe places in which to warm up in the late Cretaceous sunshine. The fossil Robert found is almost complete. This is the underside, and this brown material up here is fossilized wood. It's the end of a stick that passes right through its body and comes out just here. So the evidence points towards this turtle having been impaled. A violent end to one of the many creatures found in the crumbly rock layer. A tannis. When I look at the animals and plants preserved in the sediments of Tannis and the footprints beneath it, I see a picture of a vibrant ecosystem, many different dinosaurs, and a thriving, thriving place. After 10 years of digging, there is now enough evidence to piece together much of the story of Tannis and the creatures which lived here. Robert has found so many fossils, it looks as if, even at the very end of the late Cretaceous, Tannis was bursting with life. Full of the giant reptiles that had dominated the planet for more than 150 million years. Oh. Oh. In 
It's impossible to know how much longer their reign would have continued. Because all this was about to end. hit in what is now the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. It's called the Chicxulub asteroid after the town nearest to the center of its crater. thing within 900 miles of the impact was destroyed by the blast. But what effect did the impact have on Tanis nearly 2,000 miles away? To find out Robert is looking for clues that might link Tanis to the actual day the asteroid hit. We've got some wood and pressed up against this and all intertangled, we've got the carcasses of fish. Okay. That's a beautifully preserved tail. So that fish is gonna be absolutely gorgeous. So part of the detail work that we're doing right now is going in and checking out all the individual elements in this mass death layer. Some of the evidence he's found so far has been hidden inside the fish themselves. In more ways than one, it literally is an operation of a Cretaceous fish, so we're performing surgery on this thing. Robert needs to open this fish's skull. And very carefully we want to separate this from the rest of the fish. Okay. There we go. Bring up the fish. Got a nice ant that made a home in there. And beautiful, look at that. Okay, here we have the gill bars of the fish. Those are the bars that hold the filaments of the gills. Between the gill bars, all of these clusters of round objects, those are the ejecta spherules. Ejecta spherules are tiny balls that were once molten rock. They could be evidence of what Robert suspects, that creatures here died on the day of the asteroid strike. Those ejecta spherules last saw the light of day when they were flying through the air 66 billion years ago. After a large asteroid impact, a mix of vaporized and molten rock is propelled into space. There it cools, solidifying into tiny glass droplets. Some carry on deeper into space, 
most are pulled back to Earth by gravity. After a major asteroid hit, trillions of ejector spherules would fall from the sky. Then, over millions of years, pressure and chemical reactions in the ground would turn most of them to clay. They'd look something like this. So, finding spherules in the gills of a fish, as Robert has done at Tannis, suggests the fish sucked them in while the spherules were still falling. So these creatures could have died at the time of an asteroid impact. Once Robert begins to look for ejector spherules, he finds more and more and realizes the thick crumbly layer of rock at Tannis is full of them. I mean, this stuff is cool. Oh my god, look at that one. These things are just gorgeous. Ejected spherules like this give us a fingerprint of where they came from. If these spherules were connected to the trickle of impact, then the whole crumbly layer could be full of evidence of what happened on the day the asteroid hit. That's a good one. Oh, is that a droplet right there? To see if that's yeah. the case, Robert needs to find a spherule that hasn't turned to clay. Oh my god, that's a beautiful droplet. Okay. The small pieces of orange material that Robert and Lauren are digging up may be able to help. They're amber. If there was anything flying through the air at that time, this is where it's going to get caught. The amber they're collecting was once sticky resin oozing out of a late Cretaceous tree trunk. It's a way for the tree to protect itself like a scab falling on a cut. Anything covered by the resin would be frozen in an amber time capsule. If they find a spherule preserved in amber, it could be analyzed to see if it comes from the Chicxulub asteroid impact. So during this batch, we were incredibly lucky that we um, came across two completely unaltered spherules. This spherule could be something amazing. Evidence preserved well enough to analyze for chemical clues. If so, it could link Tannis directly with the Chicxulub impact and the last day of the dinosaurs. To investigate, Robert is joined at the Diamond Light Source by Professor of Natural History Phil Manning of the University of Manchester. They've already run initial tests on the spherules in America. What have you found out so far? These little glass spherules, these globs of molten material from the impact site have a chemical signal that ties it with where they came from. Because when an asteroid hits, it melts the ground that it hits, but also that glass has a little bit of contamination from the asteroid itself. And that gives you a unique geochemical fingerprint. 
We can see once we've scanned it and looking at spherules from other sites in North Dakota, we can get a baseline for what the ejector should look like when it's related to the Jixlu crater. You can see each element here and the, the ratios of those elements. And when we look at Tanis, it's a match. I mean, it, it perfectly overlays. So I think this is powerful evidence supporting that Tanis and Jixlu when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are linked. And what do these findings mean for the rest of the fossils that you're finding in Tanis? This data is key for the entire site because once you have that link and you know what impact affected Tanis, then you essentially know that every object in that site, all the animals and the plants and everything buried in those sediments are linked to the last day of the Cretaceous. And the synchrotron here in the UK reveals something even more remarkable. So, this is showing a beautiful synchrotron scan of a half of one spherule. The glass is a good geochemical fingerprint, and we've got calcium, some iron, we've got strontium, but when we look at the entire thing, we see something quite unexpected. That's your entire spherule. What's this? In this, we've got a little bit of a nugget. There was a little particle right there. So we scan it, and that's a lot of iron in there. Over here, we've got chromium, a big peak in chromium. Over here, we've got a big peak in nickel. And the abundances of iron, nickel, and chromium all together, that matches what you expect to see in a meteoric body. That does not match what you would normally have down here. So this is extraterrestrial material. If you were to sort of grind up and stuff into a, a spheral, a piece of meteorite, that's what it's going to look like. This could be a piece of the Chichilu asteroid. The piece of the bullet that killed the dinosaurs. No. Robert could have found a fragment of the asteroid itself in Tanis. Physical evidence linking this site to the Chukchalob impact. But Tanis is almost 2,000 miles away from where the asteroid hit. So exactly how did it cause the creature's deaths? To answer that question, Robert is searching in the mass death layer. Right here we've got this intertangled mass of fish. There's one fish here, another sturgeon goes this way, underneath the body of a paddlefish, 
There's another sturgeon that goes this way underneath this log and continues out the other side. And his head hit that log and is deflected downward at a 90 degree angle. Robert uncovered a tangled mass of fossilized creatures and logs surrounded by spherules and crushed together in what's known as a log jam. He has a theory that the creatures were swept to their death in some kind of turbulent surge of water and quickly entombed in sediment, which is why they're so well preserved. But what could have caused the wave? One theory is a tsunami. The asteroid hit at sea. Recent studies show it may have caused a wave almost a mile high. The height of the wave would have gradually reduced as it spread across the oceans. In the late Cretaceous, North America was divided by a narrow sea that's been called the Western Interior Seaway. The tsunami could have traveled up this towards Tanis. But there's a big question about the tsunami idea. The timing. Oh, which fish is that? That's a new, that's a new contact. Yeah. If a tsunami killed the fish, it would have to have hit while ejector spherules were falling. Because spherules were found in the fish's gills. So how long after impact did the spherules arrive at Tanis? Pretend this ball of foil is a piece of ejector coming out of the crater. It would then go on an arc path, ballistic trajectory, out of the crater and to wherever it lands, in this case Tanis. If we know the distance between myself and the landing site, and if we know the size of that ball, we can accurately calculate how long it would take to get there. The result is surprising. Robert and his team calculated that these ejector spherules landed at Tanis between 13 minutes and 2 hours after the impact. If a wave killed the fish, it must also have reached Tanis within two hours. Data from recent tsunamis show even a powerful one would take much longer than that to travel almost 2,000 miles from the impact site to Tanis. So if it wasn't a tsunami, what could have caused a surge of water at Tanis? Professor Stein Bondovic is an expert in tsunamis. The Fjordsi in Norway are very special. We have tall mountains surrounding bodies of water, so the water is usually very calm. In 2011, something very strange happened. The water in the fjord began to move violently. And the height of the water increased by one and a half meter, like a, a maelstrom with the turbulent water 
someone said that the fear was boiling. News started to roll in. There'd been an earthquake 5,000 miles away in Japan. A journalist from the local newspaper called me and he said that people were observing waves here in the fjords. I got a video clip of the waves. I saw immediately that they looked like a tsunami wave. So later in the afternoon, you can see that the, that the fjord is, is perfectly calm. But at the beach here, you can see that the water is sloshing back and forth. And, and no one had ever seen anything like it. Some people got very upset and afraid. A magnitude 9 earthquake had devastated the northeast of Japan around Fukushima. But how did that affect a fjord so far away? So no one in Norway could feel the earthquake. But I could see that the times matched the arrival of the waves here in the fjord. Eventually, Stein and his team realized that this might have something to do with seismic waves, shock waves that pass quickly through the earth during an earthquake. So it took only 12 minutes before the first signal of the earthquake in Japan reached uh, all the way here to, uh, to Western Norway. So it was the seismic waves that caused the normally calm water in the fjord to swash turbulently back and forth. Just thinking of that, scientifically, it's, it's fantastic. Could something similar have happened in Tannis? Trying to find out is geophysicist Professor Mark Richards, who's been studying the site of Tannis for several years. He's working with Robert to discover what could have caused a surge of water here. A tsunami can't get here in less than minimum 12 hours. But seismic waves traveling from the Yucatan impact site to North Dakota can arrive here fairly quickly. In the late Cretaceous, the Western Interior Seaway that divided North America could have been connected to Tanis through a system of rivers. You have a very large body of water, like the Western Interior Seaway, and you can shake it back and forth. You can generate a large water wave coming up this river at Tanis. So seismic waves from the impact could have caused surges of water in the Tanis River system. Seismic waves get here quickly enough, coming up the Tanis River, inundating this area, arriving at the same time these spherules are still falling out of the air. The mystery of the wave and the thick layer of crumbly rock has been solved. Seismic waves traveling through the earth could have caused powerful surges of water at Tanis. 
possibly carrying mud and marine creatures like ammonites from the western interior seaway. Dumping them on the Tannis sandbank and burying everything at the same time as spherules fell. Over millions of years, the mud would turn into the layer of crumbly rock. And that's the beauty of Tannis. What you're seeing is the deposit that is literally recording the last, say, 45 minutes to an hour and a half of the Cretaceous. If the extinction of the dinosaurs was a crime, the detectives solving it would have plenty of evidence. They would see that the asteroid was in the right place at the right time. They would see that no dinosaurs survived after the hit. They would have a piece of the murder weapon, a fragment of the asteroid. But they would be missing one very important thing, a body. No one has ever found the fossil of a dinosaur that was killed by the effects of the asteroid impact. But Robert did find part of a triceratops in the crumbly lair at Tannis. So could that be the remains of a dinosaur that died on that day? I'm still dubious about the horn. I kind of want to keep the horn in the jacket. I think if you took it off, at least take this section off to see what's going on under here. Yeah. To find out, the team needs to establish cause of death, which can be difficult when you only have a piece of skin and a horn to go on. This is the horn after they cleaned it up. The team is particularly interested in these lines here, and they found that the fractures go right through the horn. So rather than dying as a result of the impact, they wondered whether it had been killed in a fight. But when they looked at the fractures in more detail, they found signs of new bone growth here, an indication that the bone had started to heal. So it looked as though the Triceratops survived the event that broke its horn. Could this Triceratops have survived until the day of the impact? The team found evidence, including sagging of the skin, which suggested that there was decay underneath. That means its body had started to rot before it was entombed and preserved by the surge. So it seems that this dinosaur didn't die as a result of the asteroid impact. Perhaps in the months before the impact, the broken horn put the Triceratops at a disadvantage over its rivals. And that might have led to starvation.
Robert has still not found direct evidence of the dinosaur that was killed by the asteroid. We've got all these bones in the ground right now, but the one thing that we would just dream of finding is that one dinosaur that died on the day of the impact. The weather isn't helping his search. Theropod print we've got. I see some areas that could use glue right now, too. The team is racing to excavate the footprints along with dozens of fish fossils tangled together in a log jam before storms wash them away. We're up against the clock here. The stuff that could be exposed right now is going to get ruined by the rain. But then Robert comes across something that looks very unusual. That's kind of that. What is going on right there? Are we sure this isn't crocodilian? That's not crocodilian. No. Right. I'm going to this piece right here. I'll go in from the top and then twist up and it separates off right on that line. Oh. That's skin right there. That's actually God. scaly skin. No, 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 no. Look, look, look. Look at that pattern right there. Have you ever That's seen elongated insane. scales like that before, Dave? Squillets and uh, birds. Just careful. Oh, it's changing again. It's changing again. We're seeing it for the first time in 66 million years. I think we got ourselves a dinosaur. A dinosaur fossil. And unlike the Triceratops, this is located in the log jam the mass death layer, surrounded by the fish with spherules in their gills. This is the most incredible thing that we could possibly imagine here, the best case scenario. We're excavating this mass death layer of fish from the surge sent up by the impact, and we've got dinosaur remains. The one thing that we would always want to find at this site, and here we've got it. This is unreal. I, I, ca I cannot process this in my brain. No, I am absolutely blown away by this. Just my heart is literally pumping out of my chest, wondering what is behind there. Just a couple centimeters back in the outcrop. What is waiting for us back there? The team keeps digging. So this could be a rib cage. It could be laying against ribs that are curved. There's something here. That's hard. That's bone right next to the skin. Yeah. So that, that's an articular surface right there. So this is either a hip or a shoulder element. After hours of painstaking work. And we can go from the thigh of the animal. There's the knee. And then you've got the little calf muscles of the uh, dinosaur that are bulging out. And you go down to the ankle bones. And these are the toes of the feet. We've got nails at the tips of the toes. It's a beautifully preserved leg, all articulated, covered with skin. The complete leg of a dinosaur. 
In my wildest dreams, I never expected to find a dinosaur leg in this deposit. I mean, and then it's got skin and tissue? It does look just like a drumstick. It looks like a Thanksgiving turkey just laid out in the ground. And this weird scale pattern on the thigh of the animal, which we've never seen in a dinosaur before. Well, dinosaurs don't have any form of defense, so they have to have camouflage or something. That's a good point. So this could have been some sort of camouflage marking. Robert thinks he has found the body in question. A dinosaur that might itself have witnessed the cataclysmic impact. Dinosaur fossils are not known from the last years of the Cretaceous, and it was unclear whether they were already extinct or in decline or what was going on. So they were just sort of absent. And this answers that question. Were dinosaurs still there then? Well, yes. This one likely died in that search. For such big claims, Robert needs verification. He's brought the dinosaur leg to London to get a second opinion. And then here are the pads of the toes. You see all those beautiful scales lined up from Professor Paul Barrett, an expert in Ornithischian dinosaurs from the Natural History Museum. So what do you think this might be? When we look at the leg, it has claws, like the claws we see in small, agile, bipedal running dinosaurs that are plant eaters. We can rule out things like Triceratops, partly just because it's not big and stocky. And the proportions of those legs are also different from some of the other plant eaters we see and that they have this rather long ankle and shin compared with its thigh bone. So as we narrow those possibilities down, what we're left with probably is an animal called a thessalosaur. Thessalosaurs lived next to rivers where there was plenty of rich vegetation to feed on. They had leaf-shaped teeth, common amongst herbivores, and claws on their short front limbs, excellent for digging. But how did Robert's Thessalosaur die? Could it have been killed by another dinosaur? It's a possibility. This is a relatively agile animal. And that turn of speed would have been its primary defense against the large predators living alongside it. So to escape a hungry T-Rex, a Thessalosaur's first line of defense would have been to run. It may have had another defensive trick. Living next to rivers, it's possible Thessalosaurs were able to swim. It doesn't 
doesn't seem to me like there is any evidence that this animal was predated. None of the obvious tooth marks or leftover bits of carnivore teeth to suggest it's been eaten. So how do you think it died? It didn't have any particularly nasty diseases when it died. As we can see that the bones look okay. So this is an animal that was probably living and healthy at the time that this happened to it. Could this be a victim of the meteor strike? I think it's entirely possible. This is actually a shoulder bone. And this bone in the living animal would actually be way over here. And similarly, this little bone here would have been from about maybe a third of the way along the tail, maybe halfway down. So somehow, these two bones have been telescoped together. Yeah. So maybe this animal has been tumbled around. We've ruled out a lot of other possible causes of death for this animal. So it could well be that this is an animal that was there being tumbled around in its death throes in that river as a result of the asteroid impact. Well, it is exactly analogous to those human bodies found in Pompeii. It's very similar in terms of get that quick entombment. Yes, and it's almost as evocative. That's absolutely true. You've got literally the blink of an eye at the end of the Cretaceous snapped up into history, and there it is, ready to be dug up. Wow. <laughs> years of investigation, Robert has found out a great deal about the creatures which lived at Tennis, and he knows that many of them were alive on that fateful day when the asteroid devastated our planet. But how exactly did they die? Robert's finds now allow us to tell the story of that day and finally answer that question. One of the most important days in Earth's history probably started much like any other late spring morning. We know the season because Robert found fossils of young fish that died at the size they reach at that time of year. This agrees with evidence already found by other scientists. Perhaps this day that would end with so much death began with something different. A new life. certain of the exact timings of the day when the asteroid collided with our planet. But it's estimated that within just 40 minutes of the impact, the consequences for the creatures of Tanis would have been profound. Based on Robert's finds and the latest evidence from other scientists, this is how the catastrophe might have unfolded. The asteroid is around seven miles across, bigger than Mount Everest, and traveling at close to 45,000 miles an hour. The impact causes an explosion bigger than a billion Hiroshima atomic bombs. 
Tannis, almost 2,000 miles away, it's completely silent. But at the impact site, the asteroid vaporizes. More than three trillion tons of rock are ejected into space in a blast of superheated violence. Winds higher than 600 miles an colossal earthquake followed by a ring of massive tsunamis. All the while the creatures at Tannis go about their business. Just like any other day. pterosaurs emerged from the egg ready to fend for themselves and that includes fly well almost elsewhere as the devastation spreads out across North America towards Tannis, dinosaurs and creatures of all shapes and sizes are obliterated by the blast. At Tannis, for a few more precious minutes, life carries on as usual. But the clock is ticking. The blast from the impact never reaches Tannis, but seismic shock waves do. The Thessalosaur might head for a place of safety, but seismic waves are now slowly shaking the whole region, causing water to slosh and churn. Strange currents in the river give a hint of what is still to come. Next, it begins to rain. Ejector spherules are falling back to earth.
spherules begin their fall, friction heats them until they're red hot. Then the heat transfers to the air. Temperatures rise with every second. As the heat builds, the creatures of Tannis are fighting for their lives. And then, as seismic waves continue to slowly rock the whole region, a violent surge wave, 10 meters high, rushes up the Tannis River. Surviving the turbulence of the surge is a challenge even for the best swimmers. Then the powerful rocking of the river system slowly begins to draw the water back the way it came. Swimming may have saved the Thessalosaur in the past, but not this time. A large, robust animal like a T-Rex might have survived the surge. As might a hard-shelled reptile. But there is much more to come as billions of tons of superheated spherules continue to fall, the atmosphere gets even hotter, igniting dead leaves and sparking wildfires. Earthquakes, fire, devastation. Little would survive for long. On land, or in the air. the temperature of an industrial oven. Those that live deep underground may have a better chance. As the slow sloshing of the river system continues, another powerful surge hits.
destruction. For many of the creatures of Tanis, their stories end underwater. Less than two hours, the world has changed forever. The mud the surge waves leave behind will gradually turn into the thick layer of crumbly rock entombing the creatures which died here. Until 66 million years later, when they're finally unearthed. Robert's finds have helped us understand in remarkable detail what happened to Tanis in the minutes after the asteroid impact. But what about the rest of the world? The impact triggered catastrophic events such as earthquakes all over planet. And as spherules continued to fall, Wildfires may have sprung up around the globe. As that horrific day drew to a close, many of the world's dinosaurs were already dead. Research shows that the angle at which the asteroid hit and the sulfur-rich rocks at the impact site amplified the devastation. Billions of tons of sulfur were ejected into the atmosphere, blocking the sunlight. Without light, most plants died and food became scarce. As the weeks and months passed, any dinosaur left alive would have died of hunger. In the oceans, it was the same. Nearly all of the world's plankton disappeared leading to the starvation of most marine creatures. It's thought that the nuclear winter that followed caused a global temperature drop of at least 25 degrees centigrade. The fossil record tells us that this huge change in climate marked the disappearance of three quarters of all species, including the dinosaurs. The planet was in semi-darkness for around a decade as dust and soot slowly fell to earth. But then came something wonderful, a new beginning. Once the dust cleared from the atmosphere and the sunlight returned, plant life was gradually restored, led by ferns, the spores of which had lain dormant deep underground, and the world began to turn green once more. But what about the animals? Back at Tanis, Robert has unearthed something that could have helped save some of the creatures from the devastating fires. We saw a little thing poking out, so we kind of followed it back, and I'm so glad that we did. 
because what we have here is a fossil burrow from an animal 66 million years ago. The only animals that would have been around back then that would likely build a burrow like this would be the small mammals, roughly ferret-sized, and also some reptiles. If it is from a mammal, this is uh, sort of a, a window into the lifestyle of some of our oldest ancestors out here. This guy would have burrowed sideways right into the riverbank. We actually have some scratch marks on there from the interior when they were digging it. Going back, they would have lived back here and sought shelter from the dinosaurs because they just did not want to get eaten. Burrows are part of the reason that mammals survived the Great Extinction. During the nuclear winter, a burrow would have provided warmth, protection, and a place to store food. Mammals that survived were resourceful omnivores, and insects would have been a plentiful source of food. And they had another advantage, their size. If conditions are right, many animal species get larger as they evolve over millions of years. Take T-Rex as an example. This is a cast of the lower jaw of a predecessor called Gorgosaurus, which lived 72 million years ago. Well, This is the cast of the lower jaw of a T-Rex, which lived five million years later. Look at the difference in size. But the bigger the creature, the more energy they need to stay alive. So when catastrophe strikes and food is scarce, the largest tend to die out, whilst the smallest often survive. That's one of the reasons why many of the smaller mammals lived through the great darkness. And they weren't alone. Robert's fossil turtle may have been unlucky, but many others survived. As did crocodiles, snakes, and many fish species. And as for the dinosaurs, did the impact really kill them all? Well, this beautiful fossilized feather isn't from a bird, but from a predatory dinosaur. So we have to be careful when we say that dinosaurs are extinct, because what we call birds originally evolved from the smallest feathered dinosaurs. So to be correct, we should say all non-avian dinosaurs are extinct. Robert's finds have given us a better idea than ever before about what happened on the day that led to the extinction of the largest beasts ever to walk the earth. Dinosaurs were perhaps some of nature's most extraordinary creatures dominating the planet for over 150 million years before they became extinct. 
But extinction comes in different forms. And many of the amazing creatures and plants alive today are also threatened. It's possible that humanity is having as big an impact on the world as the asteroid that ended the age of the dinosaurs. As human beings, we are unique in our ability to learn from the distant past. Now, we must use that ability wisely and do our very best to protect the millions of species for whom, alongside us, this planet is home. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.